Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear the word of God as we find it written in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, reading there in the seventh chapter, beginning at the fourth verse. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning, dear friends in Christ Jesus. I need not tell you that it is a good morning, do I? And I presume that all of us feel like shouting with the psalmist, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. I hope that all of us are glad to be here this morning. This is the fourth Sunday in Lent. It is the Sunday that is called Lightari Sunday, and the word Lightari in the Latin means rejoice. This is Rejoice Sunday. The first word of the intro for the day in Latin is Lightari. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, it says, and be glad with her, all ye that love her. And the word of God that I just read, taken out of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and not only is one of joy, but it also fits into this season of the church year. You recall that the Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, he came to the great city of Corinth in Greece, and he labored there 18 months and established a Christian congregation there. Then on his third missionary journey, when he labored up in Ephesus, in Asia Minor, there was a group that came to him from Corinth, and they told him about the many sins that had cropped out in this Corinthian congregation, sins of all kinds. And then it was that Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthian congregation and he really laid it on the line. It was very frank. And he again called a spade a spade. So much so that it bothered him. He wondered whether he should have sent it and he rather grieved because of it. Then about six months later when Paul was in Macedonia, probably at Philippi, a Titus, his co-worker, a man that he had sent down to Corinth to see how things were, came to him and Titus said, Oh, Paul, he says, things are going well in the Corinthian church. He says there has been great sorrow because of their sins. There has been deep regret, real remorse. There has been real chagrin because of their sins. And so then Paul wrote this second letter, and especially the words of our text when he tells them, Oh, what cause for rejoicing is I'm happy and I thank God to think that he says, You have taken my word to heart and that there is godly sorrow among you. And he says, Not worldly sorrow. You and I may say, I wonder what he means 
by godly sorrow. That here they had a sorrow for their sin, a deep mourning, a deep regret, a deep chagrin because of their sin. What's a godly sorrow and what's a worldly sorrow, we may say to ourselves. And he rejoices that theirs is a godly sorrow. In other words, you've got a sorrow that God wants, the kind that God asks of you, the kind that God says, this pleases me. Your kind of sorrow is not the sorrow of the world that doesn't please God. And I don't think it's difficult for us to say that this is what Paul is talking about. He says to the Corinthians, you have a sorrow for your sins that is godly, the kind that God wants. Yours is a sorrow that drove you to Christ. And because it turns you to Christ, that's the kind of sorrow God wants. And he says, thank God that yours is not a worldly sorrow, a sorrow, a chagrin because of your sins and mistakes that doesn't turn you to Christ. And today, Paul, as he speaks to you and me from the Word of God, talking to us on this fourth Sunday in Lent about sorrow for sin, Paul says, rejoice. He says, be happy and be fortunate, Christians. If yours is a godly sorrow, the kind that God wants, if yours is a sorrow that drives you to Jesus Christ because of your sins, but don't rejoice and don't be happy. If yours is the kind of sorrow that doesn't turn around and drive you to Jesus Christ, and you and I may be a little puzzled about that, and we may say to ourselves, after all, I should rejoice if mine is a godly sorrow that drives me to Christ, but I've got nothing to rejoice about. If my sorrow for my sins and my wrongdoings doesn't drive me to Christ, we may say, well, after all, what's the difference? As long as I'm sorry for my sins, as long as I regret them, as long as I have deep mourning, and as long as there is chagrin and remorse, What's the difference whether my sorrow for sin drives me to Christ or whether it doesn't? We may say, as long as I'm sorry, I know God will forgive me. I know that God will save me because I am sorry for what I have done. I'm sorry for my sins and for my wrongdoings. But Paul says to you and me this morning, rejoice only if your sorrow is godly sorrow. Rejoice only if you've got sorrow for sin that turns you to Christ. Don't ever rejoice if you've got sorrow, but it doesn't drive you to Christ because Paul says it makes a tremendous difference, Christian friend. It makes a tremendous difference because Paul says a godly sorrow, the kind that drives you to Christ, it results in your salvation, but if yours is a sorrow that doesn't drive you to Christ, it ends up in eternal darkness. It ends up in hell. And you and I may say, I, I can't hardly accept that. I can't hardly feel that as long as I'm sorry for my sins, as long as I have deep regret and remorse and I mourn, uh, what's the difference whether my sins cause me and my sorrow to turn to Christ or not to turn to him? But Paul says, listen, believe me. There's a difference between life and death. The one results in your salvation, the other in your loss. And we may say this morning, is that true? And Paul would remind you and me it is. Because Paul would remind you and me that godly sorrow. When you and I have regret because of our sins and our wrongdoings, and when it drives you and me to Christ, this means that, that we turn to Christ and we tell him we are sorry that we have broken God's law, we tell him we are sorry that we have grieved and offended him, and then we ask him to forgive us our sins for his sake. Now, worldly sorrow doesn't do that at all. Again, what is sorrow for sin that drives us to Christ? Sorrow again, a feeling within our hearts of regret or remorse, and we turn to Jesus when it's a godly sorrow, and we say, I am sorry, Jesus, 
that I have broken your law. We tell him we are sorry, we are sorry enough to quit. We are sorry enough to quit. We don't want to go on doing that which is wrong. And we tell him that we haven't always put God first, that you and I have taken God's name in vain, that we haven't always kept the holy day, that you and I have been disobedient at times, that you and I have carried hatred and malice, that you and I have thought impure thoughts that we should not have thought, that you and I have not been as honest as we might have been, that you and I haven't always spoken the truth in love, that you and I have coveted and been jealous of our neighbor because of his material thing, that we have had a lot of impure thoughts in our hearts, and we tell Jesus that we are sorry for these. This is a sorrow that drives us to him. And then we tell him that we are sorry that we have grieved and we have offended him, because he is spotless, sin hurts, and we, again, we tell him from our heart, I'm sorry, Jesus, that I have hurt you, that I have hurt you and I have hurt my Heavenly Father. And then this sorrow turns to Jesus and it says, Forgive me for your sake, not that I deserve it. When there is godly sorrow, when there is a sorrow that turns you and me to Christ, you and I know this, that there's nothing meritorious about our being sorry. That it isn't such a wonderful good deed in the sight of Christ that Christ says, oh, it's so wonderful to think you're sorry, therefore I'm going to forgive you, but you and I say, for your sake. We say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, not that I'm so meritorious in telling you I'm sorry, but for your sake, because I believe that you are God's son, that you came into this world as God-man and you died for my guilt. And therefore, because you died for my guilt, I ask you to forgive me for your sake. I don't deserve it, but you forgive me. This is sorrow that turns to Christ. And Paul says, when you've got that kind of sorrow, that's tremendous, because worldly sorrow isn't that way at all. There's a lot of commendable things we can say about worldly sorrow. We may say, here's a worldly man again, he's sorry, and it may be a depth of sorrow that you and I may say it puts you and me to shame. We may say, there's a man that regrets his life so much and that it's so deep and it's so sincere that we may say, I've never seen anything like it. But we may also say this about worldly sorrow, even though it doesn't drive a man to Christ, we may say it, it comes in a man's life when his life catches up with him. When finally there comes that moment when because he's been living wrong and been going against the will of God, that the results of his sin are such that there comes deep remorse because he's hurt himself, he's hurt his family, he's hurt his children, and he stands there and he says, I regret it deeply. Then he may even turn and say, God, because I'm so sorry, because I have hurt others and I've hurt myself, I know that because I'm sorry that you will forgive. But you see, Jesus says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Oh, we may look at worldly sorrow and we may say it's so deep and it's so sincere, but there is no Christ in it. And therefore, no wonder Paul says, if you're going to rejoice, and I want you to be sure that the kind of sorrow that you've got because of your sin, it's the kind God wants, where you turn to Jesus Christ. And then when you turn to him and you ask him for forgiveness for his sake, then he, for his sake, gladly forgives you your guilt and gives you peace of mind that all is forgiven. This is the reason why we can rejoice when I turn to Jesus Christ. And there is sorrow and remorse and there is mourning because of sin. And I ask him to forgive me, not because I'm sorry, which is not meritorious and earns me nothing, but because of his love and because he died for my sins, then he gives me that peace which the world doesn't give. 
the worldly style of a man, what's wrong with it? With all the commendable things you and I say, he repudiates Christ. If there's anyone here this morning who say, I regret my sins, but I don't see any reason why I've got to turn to Jesus Christ. What you're doing, friend, you are saying, because I'm sorry, this is so wonderful and this is so meritorious that I can slap Jesus in the cross in the face and I repudiate him. This is why there is no reason to rejoice if when there comes chagrin and remorse and mourning because of our sins, but it's worldly. It can be deep. It can be tremendous. But if you slap Jesus Christ in the face, there can only be death. There will be no peace of mind because only because Christ died for you and me. And you and I find the peace that the world doesn't give. We ought to say this this morning as we talk about sorrow for sin. And all of us say, why, sure, I'm sorry. I regret the wrongs that I've done. I grieve. And there is remorse. And there is chagrin. And again, I am deeply moved. But the big thing is, Paul says, rejoice only, though, if yours is a godly sorrow. If it's the kind that turns you to Jesus Christ. And when you and I ought to say, I'm going to write that on my heart about this thing of my sorrow for sin, that it's going to be the right kind, then we ought to determine this one. We're not going to be fooled by worldly sorrow. There's something about worldly sorrow that can fool you and me. It's intriguing, isn't it? We say to ourselves, well, I've seen worldly men who were desperately sorry. May I say to you, do you know of anybody in all history that was any more sorry for what he had done than Judas Iscariot? Here was Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. We are told that he was a thief from the beginning. He always robbed because he carried the treasury pot. He always was taking money. We're told he was a thief. He was a man that was out to make a fast buck. It didn't make any difference how he made it. He was a man that went ahead and sold the best friend that he had for 30 pieces of silver. Nothing bothered him. There was no grief because life had not caught up with him. And then finally that one night there at the Garden of Gethsemane when he kissed the best friend that he ever had and when he saw them take him and he knew that that friend was going to die, that he betrayed him, that's when this man's life folded. And I challenge you in all history to name somebody who was more sorry because of his sin than Judas Iscariot. The depth of his sorrow was tremendous. I don't think you and I have ever seen the depth and the sincerity. But what was wrong with it? Judas Iscariot was a worldly sorrow. Life caught up with him and he regretted every bit of it. But he didn't turn to Jesus Christ. Judas went and he threw the 30 pieces of silver back in the temple, didn't he? He didn't turn to Christ. It wasn't the kind of sorrow that God wants. He allowed despair and despondency to come. And he went out and he took a rope and he hanged himself. Then he stood before God deeply sorry. No man was ever more deeply sorry. With his own blood on his soul as a self-murderer. The word of God assures you and me that after death there is no chance for a godly sorrow to turn to Jesus Christ. And he damned himself, a man that had worldly sorrow that rivals any other man in history. We can be fooled by it. We can be fooled because it's sincere, because it may be so deep. Let's say to ourselves, oh, I'm not going to let that fool me. Any kind of sorrow and regret that I have, that doesn't turn me to Jesus Christ is going to bring about my damnation. 
that you and I may have the joy of escaping the tragedy of tragedies. You may say this thing about sorrow. I think it's time that you and I grapple with it and we realize nearly every man's sorry for something he's done wrong. Certainly is, and you and I as Christians, and Paul would say to you, but listen, oh, this thing of being filled with sorrow for the wrongs that you've done, and who isn't? Who hasn't done wrongs that you and I regret and there's remorse and there's chagrin and we mourn over them? But Paul said, listen, rejoice only, though, if it's a godly sorrow, the kind that God wants. You and I may say, well, sorrow, sorrow, isn't it? What more can I do than go into the depths of sorrow and God knows that I'm sorry for what I've done and I don't want to do it again. But Paul says, wait a minute. Is it a godly sorrow? Is it the kind that turns you to Jesus Christ or doesn't it? And Paul says it makes a tremendous difference. Oh, there's a difference between life and death. The one will result in your eternal welfare and the other will damn you. And you and I say, oh, how can such an extreme sorrow when I deeply regret every dirty thing that I've ever done in life and every dirty word and every word that I've said that is wrong and every thought and everything that I've done to harm other people, when I regret it from the depth of my soul, do you mean to tell me that that kind of sorrow can end in hell? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Paul says, is it godly? You turn to Jesus Christ, and you and I say, well, that's hard to believe, but Paul in the second place will remind you and me that only a godly sorrow, the kind that just simply drives you and me to Jesus Christ, what does it mean? It means that you and I turn to him, and we admit that we deserve to be lost and damned in hell. This is what we deserve because of our sins, and then we ask him to forgive us this punishment of hell for his sake. Oh, what is godly sorrow? I am really sorry in the way God wants me to be when I can turn to Jesus Christ and I can say to him, I admit, Christ, that if you dealt with me as you ought to deal with me, I've broken your law in thought, word, and deed. I am guilty. I am therefore subject to punishment. And if you dealt with me the way you should, you should damn my soul and body in hell forever and ever. I make no bones about it. You're right in doing it. This is justice. This is what I deserve. But it also means this, that I say, but Christ, forgive me, not because I'm sorry, not because this is so meritorious and so wonderful. Forgive me for your sake, not my sake. I put my faith and trust in you because I believe that on the cross you bore hell and damnation for me. And I believe, therefore, you've got an exemption from hell, and I'm asking you for your sake, not that I deserve it. Will you forgive me hell and damnation? This is not the meaning of worldly sorrow. A man of worldly sorrow, he doesn't turn to Jesus Christ. He doesn't tell Christ, I deserve to be damned. Usually the man of worldly sorrow, he looks around and says, there's others that are a lot worse than I am. Therefore, I know that because I'm sorry, I'm not going to be lost. God's going to save me, but you see, Jesus says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And when I can turn and I can admit that I'm lost and damned and I ask him to forgive me for his sake, not because I'm sorry, which is not meritorious, then it means what? That Jesus, for his sake, he tells me I, I free you from eternal damnation, body and soul. I free you and I give you the joy that your soul and body will not be damned because I, by my death on the cross, I merited this exemption for you. And we, again, this is not what earthly or worldly sorrow means. Some of us may say, 
with anybody in this church this morning is any more sorry for some of the things I've done. But ask your friend, is it a worldly sorrow? Have you turned to Jesus Christ? If you haven't, then what you're saying to God is this, God, I I'm so sorry, God, that I know you won't send me to hell because look at the depth of my soul. No one regrets it. No one has greater remorse and chagrin because of what he's done than I. But you're slapping Christ in the face and you're saying, I don't need you. All I need is the meritoriousness of being sorry. Today we ought to say there is no merit in being sorry. There is no atonement in being sorry. The only merit, the only atonement is Jesus Christ. We ought to say to ourselves this morning then, when Paul says, Rejoice and thank God and consider yourself fortunate if when you were filled with grief and mourning and sorrow, when life was caught up with you, and again, here is something that you've done wrong and it's brought grief and sorrow to your loved ones and brought it to yourself and you stand and you can't stand it. Uh, Paul says, make sure that the kind of sorrow that you've got is the kind that drives you to Jesus Christ, that it is not the kind of sorrow that doesn't drive you. We ought to say to ourselves, and I'm going to see this, that whenever I'm sorry for sin, whenever there comes again this feeling of remorse, I'm going to see that I turn to Jesus Christ regardless of how great my sins may be. And this is the thing that bothers, isn't it? We may say to ourselves, but look at my sins. You mean that my sorrow should be such that I, I go to Christ? You're proud, aren't you? And so am I. Oh, we're so proud we hate to turn to Jesus and to bow to him and to admit that we deserve to be damned. We're proud, aren't we? But you, if we're not so proud to have done the wrong, why should we be so proud that we refuse to turn to him and admit it? Oh, to say, when I've got grief in my heart, it's going to be God's kind. It's going to be the kind that I'm going to Christ. I don't care what I've done. Look at Peter. Simon Peter. Was his sin any less than Judas's? Of course not. Who knows what you and I may do before death comes. Here was Simon Peter in the upper room and he was telling Jesus, everybody else will forsake you, but I'll never forsake you. Don't you ever worry about me. I'm strong. I'm Peter the rock. I'll never fall. And that very night before the cock crew twice, three times he had denied that he ever knew Jesus Christ. Who knows what can come? And then there came that horrible remorse and regret well, so did Judas have it. You may say, well, what's the difference? The difference was this, that Peter's was the kind that God wants. Peter turned and he saw Jesus and he, he wept. He went to him. This was the difference. It didn't make any difference how big his sin was. Look at St. Paul. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. He called himself. He says, I am not meet to be called an apostle. I am like something born out of due time. He says, I am like a fetus. Did you ever see a fetus of an unborn child about six weeks or eight weeks old? It's a loathsome sight. Paul said, that's what I look like because I persecuted the church of God. Oh, his sin was great. But on the way to Damascus when he said again, Lord, what do you want me to do when Jesus said you're persecuting me? He got down on his knees and he wasn't so proud of what he, he turned to Jesus. And this was his sorrow. He wanted forgiveness from him. There's David. Talk about the greatness of sin. David and Bathsheba. 
He was the king. He could do no wrong. He wanted Bathsheba and he got her. When she became pregnant, he had to kill her husband. And everything was going well and he thought nobody knew it until his little world crashed too. When Nathan came to him one day, what do you think of a man, a rich man that's got a lot of sheep and a poor man that's got one, and the rich man gets company and he goes over and takes the one sheep of the poor man, that one sheep that that poor man loved dearly and ate with him and slaughtered it and served it. And David said, that guy's got to die. And Nathan says, you're that guy. His world crashed too. Oh, there came remorse and regret. But what, David turned to his Lord, didn't he? Yeah, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Oh, again, pride didn't stand in the way. He went. He went to his Lord, the Messiah, and he confessed it all, and he wanted forgiveness. This is the difference. We say to ourselves, Well, what's the difference as long as I'm sorry? Sort of a, oh, this is sort of a talisman. This is a sort of a lucky stone, a rabbit's foot, we may say. As long as I can tell God I'm sorry and that I deeply regret it and I mourn my sins and I'm filled with chagrin and remorse, uh, that's all that's necessary. God's going to forgive old. Paul says, oh, if that's the kind of God, oh, don't rejoice on that. That's the kind, Paul says, that brings about your damnation, your eternal loss and eternity of darkness. And you and I say, well, what's the difference? Well, there's a tremendous difference when it's godly sorrow because Paul reminds us also that when your sorrow and mine is godly, the kind God wants, and that means that we turn to Jesus Christ in this grief over our sin and this chagrin and this remorse. It means that we turn to him and we admit to him that we'd like to go to heaven but we have no righteousness of our own at all. And then we ask him to give us his righteousness for his sake. That's what it means. We tell him, Lord, I'd like to live with you in heaven. I don't have anything to give you in exchange for heaven. The fact that I'm sorry, that's not anything that is noteworthy. Now, that is nothing that atones. That is nothing so wonderful in your sight that I say, here, I'm sorry that you're so thrilled that I'm sorry that you're going to save me. I know better than that. It doesn't mean anything. It's no work of righteousness. But when you and I turn and say, but I am sorry... I would like to spend eternity with you in heaven. I would like to have you give me heaven. And I ask you for it, not because I deserve it, but ask it for your sake. You died on the cross, and you bore my guilt, and you, you merited a robe of righteousness for me and for all men. And Lord Jesus, because I put my faith and trust in you, will you give me your robe of righteousness? Will you put it on me that will cover up all my dirty, stinking sins and that I can stand before you and that I can be as a righteous person and then will you give me eternal life? And that means that it also, Jesus, because of his sake, he says, here's my robe. I put it on you. Not that you deserve it. You have turned to me and you have asked me for my sake. You have put your faith in me and I give you that robe of righteousness. But how about the man who, again, has only worldly sorrow? What's he saying to Christ? Christ, take me to heaven because I'm sorry. Don't you realize, Christ, how wonderful this is to think that I'm sorry for my sin? And what is he doing? He is repudiating Jesus Christ. This is the sin of sin. To slap him in the face and say, I don't need you as long as I'm sorry and I regret my life and I regret what I've done and I'm filled with chagrin and remorse. 
and I'm filled with mourning, everything's going to be all right. And Paul said, oh, don't kid yourself. Paul said, if you're going to rejoice, you make sure that your sorrow, it's the kind God wants. You turn to Jesus Christ. And it ought to mean bringing it down in your life and mine this morning. We ought to write it on our souls and say, well, all of us are sorry. Sometimes, you know, uh, we just think we live in a fool's paradise, don't we? I- I'm sorry. I regret it. I don't want to do it again. And everything's all right. But Paul says, wait a minute. If you're going to rejoice, what kind of sorrow do you have? We've all got some of it isn't so good. Some of it's a sham. Do you have the kind that God wants? Have you turned to Jesus Christ? Then we ought to determine this morning to say this, that I'm going to be very careful the kind of sorrow and regret and chagrin and remorse I have because of the dirty, stinking things that I've done in life. I'm going to see to it from this day on that when I look at my sorrow, I'm going to ask myself, has it driven me to Jesus Christ? Then I ought to say, it's got to mean that I'm going to Christ regardless of the lateness of the hour. How many of us say, well, I I haven't gone to him yet, and it's kind of late? How many of us are pretty proud on this? Oh, in my early ministry, I met a very proud man, and I don't think I'll ever get over the incident as long as I live. It was my neighbor. When I moved to my first parish, he passed me on the street, went by my house two and three times a day, and never said hello. I would say hello to him, but there was no answer. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what had happened. I knew it couldn't have been anything personally with me because he didn't know me took months before finally he would gruffly say hello. Then I found out about him that I was told that he, again, had fought alcoholism all his life. He was out drunk one night driving his car and ran over a man and killed him. He served a year in Ohio penitentiary because of it. Bitter, bitter. Finally, one day I was told that he was in the hospital over at Reed Memorial in Richmond, Indiana. I drove to Reed Memorial. I thought, I want to go in to see this man. At least he was talking to me. Went in, and when I did, he started to cry. I realized that this man knew he was fatally sick. Life was caving in on him. When he saw me, he began to weep. And he looked at me and said, I never thought that you'd ever come to see me. And he cried and said, I'm so glad to see him. I, I spoke to him for some time. When I got ready to leave, I said, Would you mind if I had a prayer with you? The minute I said, he looked up to me and he said, You're a nice guy but I don't want what you got. And I walked out. I said, all right. I went back the next day. It bothered me. There was a man who knew he was dying. And he was so proud. He was saying no. He went back in the same experience. He cried again said, I never thought you'd ever come to see me. Oh, I appreciate it. When I began to say, could we pray together? No, I don't want what you got. You're a nice guy. That went on any number of times, and finally he was brought home to die, and this doctor called me. And I went over to his home, and I asked his wife to get out of the room, and I stood there with him alone. And I I said to him, listen, friend, I know what you've done. I know what you've been. You don't have to tell me a thing, but I've got a Christ. who, if, If you just turn to him, and just lay aside your pride and turn to him and say, I'm sorry, forgive me for your sake. He died for you. And if I ever in my young ministry ever tried to explain the loving gospel of Jesus Christ, I tried to that. He looked at me and he said again, you're a nice guy. But he said, I don't want what you've got. And then he said, listen, I'm not yellow. I'm no crying baby. 
He said, I've lived without him and I'm not going to him now and crawl. What would he think? I'm not yellow if I've lived with him. I'm not going to play the baby. And go to him now. And I said, won't you let me pray and we'll turn to him? He said, I said, if you were out drowning, you'd reach for a leaf. You'd take a risk. Pride going to keep you when he, he's calling him. He said, I don't want what you've got. I walked out of there. So I say, I'll never forget as long as I live. And he died about an hour and a half later. I preached his funeral. It was something to preach. But oh, there's another picture. Remember on Good Friday, there was, again, a man on the center cross, and there were two malefactors, one on his left and one on his right. Oh, it was the 11th hour. It was a little late, about five minutes to 11. And here again, both of them blaspheming him. And suddenly, this man on the right, there's something happened. He heard the man on the center cross praying for his enemies. And this guy on the right, he reaches around as much as he can to the guy on the left. He says, shut up. I don't keep on blaspheming. What you and I are getting, we deserve it. Not, not this man on the center cross. This man's innocent. Oh, and the clock you see is still spinning. It's getting close to 11 o'clock. It's the 11th hour. And then this man here, he takes a risk. Oh, he'd been a murderer. He'd been a thief. He'd been a robber. Then he looks up at him. Oh, he wasn't saying to himself, how do I know if I'd live or whether I really mean it? You may say, how do I know if I'm in my fatal illness, if I'd get well, whether I wouldn't go back to say, can't you take a risk? If Jesus is willing to, can't you take a risk? This guy took a risk. And he looked up and he said, Lord, remember me, will you, when you come into your kingdom? Took a risk. Your Lord mind looked down on him. And he smiled and he said, Today, now a factor, you're going to be with me in paradise. Well, there may be somebody here this morning who said, Oh, I'm not going to play the baby. I'm not going to be yellow. I'd live without him. I'm not going to crawl. What would he think of me? Oh, for God's sakes, lay aside your pride. Take a risk. I don't know what you'd do if you lived. But I do know this, that here's a Christ that is calling. Behold a stranger at the door. He gently knocks as knocked before. Has waited long, is waiting still. You treat no other friend so well. And will he prove a friend indeed? He will, the very friend you need. The friend of sinners, yes, to see. With garments dyed on Calvary. Admit him, lest his anger burn. And he departing, ne'er return. Admit him, or the hour's at hand. And you'll at his door, rejected, stand friend. The clock's ticking away. It's pretty close to eleven. Jesus is saying, please, please, please. Amen. The peace of God which passeth all human understanding, keeping unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.